Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, very warm welcome uh, to today's webinar. Uh, my name is Aisha Al Sarihi. I am a research fellow at the Middle East uh, Institute. I'm very delighted to welcome you all to today's webinar, where we are going to uh, discuss the implications of recently signed agreement uh, between Saudi Arabia and Iran with the mediation of China. As we know, on the 10th of the last month, Saudi Arabia and Iran signed an agreement in Beijing, announced uh, to restore the diplomatic ties, uh, reopen the embassies in the two countries, and revive the security and economic uh, uh, agreements signed between the two countries more than 20 years ago. And as we saw today, uh, the foreign ministers of Saudi Arabia and Iran have met uh, already uh, in Beijing to discuss uh, the reopening uh, of the embassies and the restoration of the uh, diplomatic ties. So in today's webinar, uh, we are hoping to discuss uh, uh, different questions, including how remarkable this agreement is and what is the rationale for the three players uh, to come into this agreement? What does it mean for Iran? for Saudi Arabia and China. What, what does this agreement has in store for regional security architecture? And uh, what does it tell us about you know, the presence of the great powers in the region, especially for China and the US? So to answer those questions and more, uh, I am very delighted to be joined today by distinguished uh, speakers who have the firsthand expertise in this particular issue. And uh, uh, first of all, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Uh, Mohammed Sulami, who is the founder and president uh, of the International Institute for Iranian Studies, Prasana, which is an independent think tank based in Riyadh. He is also an associate professor of Iranian studies at Umm Al-Qura University. Thank you for joining us, Mohammed. Uh, from London, we have Dr. Uh, Sanam Vakil, who is the director uh, of the Middle uh, East North Africa program at the Chatham House. Uh, she, uh, she focuses on the regional security, Gulf geopolitics, and Iran's domestic and foreign policy. We also have uh, with us from Singapore, uh, our colleague uh, from the Middle East Institute, Dr. John Loeb Salmon, who is a senior research fellow specializing in the Middle East uh, strategic affairs with a particular focus on Israel-Hezbollah conflict and the evolution of the Gulf security system. So thank you very much for all the speakers for joining us uh, today. Uh, but before we kick off the discussion, I just wanted to uh, inform all of those joining us uh, on Zoom. Uh, please note that we have uh, a space for the Q&A. Uh, we will spend the 40, first 40 minutes for uh, the opening remarks, and then we will open the floor for the questions. So please feel free to post uh, your question on the chat box. So with that, uh, I would like to start with you, Dr. Mohammed, uh, with a question about uh, the Saudi Arabia perspective. As we know, the negotiations to reach this agreement have started back in 2021. Uh, so, uh, and the agreement have been reached almost two years later. So why, why is it now for Saudi Arabia? Why Saudi Arabia have decided to move on with the agreement? And what are the main uh, you know, uh, priorities for Saudi Arabia? And if you could enlighten us about immediate priorities and long-term against for Saudi Arabia signing this agreement. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dr. Aisha, and thanks for our colleagues uh, from London and Singapore, and from uh, all our colleagues who are, and friends who are following this uh, webinar. And Ramadan Mubarak, although it's a bit late, but it's, this is an important opportunity to, to congratulate you and those who celebrate Ramadan. As you know, almost two years ago, exactly, actually in April 2021, the first round of talks uh, between Saudi and Iran, uh, Iranian officials, started in Baghdad. It was, I think, uh, 9th of April uh, 2021. 
so uh, and uh, we had five rounds of talks uh, in Baghdad, and also we had other meetings uh, in Oman. Uh, these meetings were on security level in particular, and we're trying to find ways to go uh, forward. Uh, we have have seen uh, many and read many actually. Uh, political and official statements from both sides about these meetings and what uh, what the issues were discussed during these meetings. Where they were a positive environment, but at that time they said there was no real uh, progress in that regard. And here we find the one who can play an important role, which is China. China is uh, a good friend of both sides, uh, Saudi and Iran. It is the trader number one, trade number one for both sides as well. Uh, it is uh, the country that was uh, blamed to be a free, uh, free rider in the Gulf by the American administration a few years back. Therefore, they tried to to seize this opportunity to play a role in that. Uh, what, what, uh, why is it uh, now for Saudi Arabia? For at least four reasons. One is uh, uh, taking consideration the five rounds of talks and the agreement, uh, the meetings in Oman. It became very clear for Saudi that it seems to us that more uh, Iran is more serious in these discussions compared to other uh, discussions in the past. This is one. Uh, uh, second. Uh, Saudi is adopting a, a zero uh, problem foreign policy approach, which is uh, very clear during the last at least two years. We, are, we, we know the, uh, the Qatar issue, we know the Turkey, and now uh, uh, Syria, and now Iran. So this, uh, this is very clear indication for the new uh, foreign policy in Saudi Arabia, that is trying to minimize any differences, try to resolve all problems, try to you know, extend hands to uh, all regional players and beyond that. So it's, this is uh, what we, I think one of the reasons why Saudi is taking this step right now. Third, in my opinion, uh, reason is Saudi's strategy to, to seize uh, opportunities under the multipolar uh, world order. You know, there is a huge discussion in the, in the political environment uh, and, and uh, you see it in, in media and everywhere and that, uh, China is becoming more uh, active in the geopolitics compared to its previous, uh, you know, tools, which is mostly uh, economy, business, and soft power. Now, uh, China is becoming more uh, active, and many people, many countries around the globe are not happy with the uh, the 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 uh, the the, uh, the American, I would say, the American, uh, you know. Uh, policy or the way they engaging with the, at least the Middle East and with the, with the, with the focusing on the withdrawal from the Middle East and from the Pacific and this engagement from this region. And of course, China is important in this regard because of their own initiative, Wooden Built Road Initiative is, uh, is uh, focusing on this region. This is the main route for this initiative to, to have a successful Chinese initiative, we, we need a stable uh, Middle East, uh, especially the Gulf region. Therefore, China is important in this regard. Third, and Saudi wants to play a role in that regard. Also for the future, that's try to, to have different uh, partnerships, uh, not only on the trade, before we, say, we, we focus on that, China is the trade partner when it comes to security and politics, we are looking toward the West. Right now, it is not exactly the case, although it's still early to decide this, but it's, we try to have, you know, different a variety of partnerships with different players that may, in a way or another, help Saudi Arabia and, and also, uh, uh, you know, uh, the Saudi interest comes first in this regard. Fourth, it might be in China confidence, uh, Saudi confidence in China as a, an international uh, uh, grand tour. This is very important. And I think this is why uh, many people in the West, the United States are not happy with the, the, the space given to China by Saudi Arabia and Iran, particularly Saudi Arabia. But this is the reality that uh, uh, we have been saying that China is 
very important player. It is the only country, and I've said that many times in our set, uh, that uh, China is the only country that can play a role, a mediation role between Tehran and Riyadh, because it is the friend of both sides, and Iran is, there is a Chinese leverage over Iran in terms of trade, in terms of the, uh, the Security Council and, uh, and many international organizations. They, China, Iran doesn't want to lose China, therefore, Saudi wants China to play a role in this regard because the confidence in, 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 uh, in achieving a better deal with Iran. So these more uh, important, in my opinion, uh, uh, reasons uh, for, me, I don't know how much time I do have, but for uh, long, uh, short and long uh, term, uh, you know, achievements for Saudi Arabia. I think when uh, it's good to have zero uh, problem in the region, this is one of them immediate, uh, actually, uh, goals of Saudi Arabia, taking consideration the Fusion 2030, to have, uh, to, uh, to, you know, attract more international investments in Saudi Arabia. So we need a very secure area. This is one second. Yemen is an important issue. Uh, I think we may have uh, time to discuss that in more detail. Third, uh, uh, I think it's uh, to, to send a message to the international community that Saudi wants to, uh, to what the Congress said, the, the, the new Europe is the Middle East. So they want to play a role in that regard to, to, to net, you know, materialize this issue. That's we want to have zero problems. We try to solve our problems among ourselves and with the other players like China, but also that means we still have a very good and strategic relation with the West doesn't mean we are shifting toward the East. We still want to be in the middle to look after our interests. Thank both Thank East you. and West. Thank you. Thank you, Mohammed. Uh, so yeah, because of time, I have to stop you. Sorry for that. So now I want to move uh, to you, uh, uh, Sanam. And uh, I want to uh, pose the same question, if it's okay, but from the Iran perspective. So why it is timely for Iran uh, to come uh, and sign the agreement now? And what are the anticipated gains for Iran from this agreement? Thank you so much, um, Dr. Aisha. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Thank you uh, to the Middle East Institute for the invitation. Um, and um, I'm really happy to be on this panel with Dr. Mohammed and Jean-Lou uh, so we can exchange our views. Um, I think uh, similar to uh, Saudi Arabia, Iran had uh, a number of uh, domestic as well as regional motivations uh, for making this deal. It had uh, long been exchanging um, dialogue uh, with Riyadh. Um, and uh, I think the timing of this deal um, is really important for Tehran because it comes after uh, Iran experienced uh, many months of quite serious protests. Um, and these protests, um, of course, um, posed a domestic challenge to the leadership in Tehran. But I would also argue that the protests has, have sort of changed um, the image of Iran among uh, Western states and the international community and really motivated and animated the Iranian diaspora uh, with, with many people seeing the protests as an opportunity um, to support uh, uh, broader regime change or revolution in Tehran. Um, and the Islamic Republic, of course, is an institutionalized bureaucratic state um, uh, that has um, been quite adept at managing threats. It has had a long history of managing domestic threat, regional threat, international threats, um, but it seeks to lower the temperature of the number of threats it's simultaneously managing. Um, so I think that the primary motivation for Tehran um, to pursue this deal right now um, is to reduce the pressure in Iran um, as a result of the protests. And let me explain what that means. Um, obviously, Iran um, has been under serious maximum pressure sanctions since the Trump administration withdrew from the JCPOA uh, in um, 2018, uh, despite the Biden administration's efforts at engaging with Iran, the JCPOA uh, currently doesn't seem a, like a revivable framework. So there is no current opportunity for sanctions relief. 
Um, and that means that ordinary Iranians will continue to be under economic pressure. <clears> the <throat> same time, the pockets of the Iranian population are very much fired up and animated as a result of the protests. Um, and <clears throat> the Islamic Republic has um, believed and constantly blamed external forces for supporting pockets of the protests inside Iran, as well as being behind um, uh, diaspora-based uh, news like Iran International. Uh, so uh, from Tehran's perspective, this deal is uh, accomplishes a few things. It reduces tensions directly with Saudi Arabia and as part of the agreement informally, um, there is some uh, perhaps commitment that um, uh, Iran International's presence in Europe and its um, activities in Europe uh, will, will not um, be as inflammatory. Iran International has moved to Washington, D.C. conveniently, and this reduces um, the optics and symbolism and pressure for Iran within European capitals. There is also supposedly a commitment that um, uh, domestic groups in Iran uh, will receive less support, uh, be it uh, tangible or symbolic from external forces as well. Um, and this is important for, for the Islamic Republic. And thirdly, obviously, there is the huge symbolic gain of breaking maximum pressure and containment against Iran, and also showing that Iran has survived the protests and that Saudi Arabia would not have made a deal with a fragile, weak, you know, uh, precipice of revolutionary Islamic Republic. So it shows that the Islamic Republic remains uh, intact, functional, um, and able to uh, manage domestic pressure while also engaging in regional negotiations simultaneously. There is, of course, one added layer to this, that Iran, because of sanctions, is also seeking sanctions um, relief and is looking to build stronger regional economic ties as, as well as strengthen um, its ties with Beijing. And it has been deeply disappointed that China has not um, invested more in the Iranian economy. Um, it does buy oil, albeit at a discounted and limited rate. And so um, it sees this agreement um, as building perhaps stronger economic ties with Beijing and perhaps over time with Riyadh and, and other regional states as well. So I'll stop there. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Sanem. Uh, now, if I can move uh, to you, Dr. Janlu, uh, and uh, I know that you have a great ex uh, expertise on the great powers. So uh, a main question, like also when this agreement took place, is the, uh, the, uh, the evolving role of China uh, in the Middle East. Is it going beyond economic relations? And then also, what does this agreement means for the U.S. presence uh, uh, in the region, uh, if you can enlighten us on that. Thank you. Thank you very much, Aisha. Uh, and it's a pleasure to be uh, also on this uh, panel. Uh, very briefly uh, on that, because I, I'm sure we want to have uh, as much uh, as much uh, time as possible for the, the conversation. The and the the, the 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 announcement of the deal was welcomed with shock and awe in uh, Washington. But I think the first thing is that it, the, the, the agreement doesn't tell us uh, really about the U.S. long-term presence. It tells us more about the Saudi perception of that U.S. presence. And uh, Dr. Mohammed already uh, covered some of these aspects. I think the the, the announcement was a clear indication that uh, Saudi Arabia and more broadly Gulf states are more and more um, uh, skeptical about uh, U.S. resolve to intervene in their region. But apart from that, the I mean, first on China's uh, China's involvement in the region, I don't see at the moment this uh, commitment as going beyond economic and diplomatic. Uh, relations. Uh, the, the, the big question mark will be if China can really follow up uh, with that uh, that deal. And the meeting which uh, just took place today is a first uh, test of that 
uh, of that uh, ability of Beijing to um, to follow up. Because the, the big question is what happens if uh, or when uh, Iran or Saudi Arabia just uh, uh, breaches uh, some of the uh, the terms of the agreement. Uh, what happens if uh, there's a, a nuclear on Iran uh, in a few years from now, or just if you have the Houthis firing uh, rockets at the Saudi territory and uh, um, talks of uh, Iran keeping uh, the supplies uh, of uh, weapons to the Houthis. Uh, so all of that, uh, I, I think, will be a major test for China, because I, I'm not sure China wants to go beyond what it has already done in terms of diplomatic investment. Uh, and in comparison, what is quite interesting with all the talks about the deal is that uh, the US is still the major um, actor in the region by far. Uh, despite all the talks of the US disengagement, we're still talking about a country that has 30,000 troops on the ground permanently uh, in, uh, in the Gulf states just in the Gulf states. It goes beyond that if we include the broader Middle East. But there's no other country that can do that. Uh, we can argue that China may want to have more influence in different ways, but even in terms of military cooperation, arms sales, this is pretty limited and will remain limited for the near future. Uh, so the, the agreement tells us a lot about the perceptions of the local partners, uh, and that is troubling for U.S. credibility, but in terms of the resources and the U.S. policy, I think this will more the, the real problem is in D.C. and how people in Washington uh, want to prioritize the Middle East. There's a, I think, and I'll stop here. I think there's a contradiction at the moment because the U.S. clearly wants to uh, de-emphasize its presence in the Middle East, but at the same time it cannot accept the growing presence of China in the region. So I'm not sure, for instance, as Dr. Mohammed uh, uh, explains the zero sum or zero problem policy of Saudi Arabia. I don't think this is a narrative that the US in the current context in DC can accept. This idea that yes, uh, uh, traditional partners can have good relations with the US, with Russia or in China. The U.S. will uh, still uh, push its partners to make a choice. But this comes as a contradiction, especially when at the same time you're telling your partners, we're going to reduce our presence. So I'll stop here. Thank you very much, Dr. John Liu. Um, uh, I'm going back to uh, Dr. Mohammed. Um, and um, another important question uh, to this agreement is, you know, uh, the rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran for almost seven years has created those proxies in the region. So, and uh, uh, the most important proxy is uh, in Yemen, uh, the, the war in Yemen. Uh, if you could uh, tell us more on how will this deal help to resolve the issue of the war in Yemen? Uh, very important question. I think it's, uh, it's it comes at the core of this agreement, in my opinion. If we go back to the five round talks in, in Baghdad, the main discussion was to, to actually to build the trust between the two sides is, is the Yemen issue that uh, everybody knows that Iran is supporting uh, Houthis uh, with, with weapons, with uh, intelligence, and, uh, and of course uh, they have uh, uh, different uh, actually uh, support to the Houthis. Uh, and we have lots of evidence, official evidence of the drones and missiles that come from Yemen and from the Houthis are uh, Iran, Iran made weapons. Uh, this is one issue. So, so this is, I think, uh, it comes at, at one of the principles, I think, of this, uh, of, uh, and the pillars of this agreement. Uh, at the same time, uh, uh, Saudi started uh, opening a channel, direct channel with, with, uh, with the Houthis themselves. We, we uh, know now that uh, there was uh, different, uh, so did the, uh, you know, the small delegations travel to Yemen and met with the Houthis, trying to encourage the Houthis to come to the table of negotiations along with other uh, Yemeni political parties uh, to, to have a Yemeni-Yemeni dialogue. We had that one of which was in, in Riyadh last year, last Ramadan actually, a year exactly, a year ago. So we had 10 days of Yemeni-Yemeni discussion. I was part of that, trying to facilitate 
the meeting, I'm managing one of the sessions uh, for 10 days, uh, so political session in particular. Uh, so uh, Yemeni, the Houthis were invited to, to, to join this Yemeni-Yemeni dialogue. And even after the, the, the beginning of the dialogue in, in Riyadh, in the GCC uh, Council, uh, still, there was a sort of statement that the Houthis still can they couldn't come now, but anytime they can join uh, the the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the dialogue, the Houthi, Yemeni Yemeni dialogue. That was also a statement from the GCC uh, officials in this regard. So uh, uh, now the, the the main focus is to have a Yemeni Yemeni dialogue to go back to the. Uh, National dialogue in Yemen, the, the GCC initiative, to uh, other uh, in the Kuwait dialogue, the Stockholm Agreement, all these uh, different initiatives, just to put the women aside and try to come to the table of negotiations. Of course, Saudi, for sure, agrees that uh, uh, the Houthi are the Houthis are part of the political, uh, you know. Uh, construction of in Yemen, but cannot be a state within a state. We cannot afford another Hezbollah on our border. This is the whole thing. But nobody can minimize or, or ignore their own rights to be part of the political, uh, you know, it's either the, the government or, or, or the different parties. So this is very important. Uh, now, I think the, going forward in this meeting, it, it, this is one of the main testing actually uh, tools for if this agreement is strong or not, will that last for longer or not? If this is serious or is it tactical or strategic move from, from whether from Saudi or from Iran, but mostly from if it's from Iran, because this is the way uh, we have been asking the Iranians to, to just uh, uh, prove that they are serious in their discussions and their uh, statements are, we can see their own official statements reality in the ground. So if that, if we resolve the Yemeni issue, then I think we'll have a better deal and long lasting, long lasting deal. That means uh, we'll uh, have a better, in terms of the uh, political, uh, trade and everything with Iran. But within that few months to come, I think this is important to watch and, and see if, if the Houthis uh, agrees, uh, the Houthi group agrees to, to come to the table negotiations, with the Yemenisms, so we are not talking about Saudi Houthis agreement alone, but also as we support the legitimate government, the international community supports the Yemeni legitimate government. And we ask the Houthis to come to, to the table of negotiations and try to reach an agreement with the, with the government of the uh, Yemen. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Mohammed. Um, uh, now I want to go back to you, Dr. Sanam. Um, I also wonder if you have any further comments on how uh, Iran views the uh, issue of Yemen can be resolved. Um, and also, uh, I know like you mentioned that there are so far no signs for the sanction uh, reliefs uh, on Iran, but do you think that this agreement would have any implications for the GCOBA or the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Thank you. Thank you, Aisha. Um, I think that there is some hope in Iran that by lowering the regional temperature and showing signs of uh, regional goodwill, that there would be a knock-on effect that could over time change, um, change the view in Europe, if not in the United States, towards Iran. Um, I think that the, the, the acceleration of Iran's nuclear program in conjunction with Iran's decision to send uh, drones to support Russia during the war, and then add on top of that um, the impact of the protests, the visual of those protests and the government repression, you know, it's very much hardened minds in European and Western capitals against the Islamic Republic. That I don't think that policymakers were um, completely uh, deluded. They, everyone knows that the Islamic Republic has been repressive to its own people and been a regional menace for decades now. But there was hope that the JCPOA could be revived. And I think that in, in still some capitals, there was some thinking that 
through these agreements, Iran would moderate or transform over time. Um, perhaps what we have finally arrived at is an awareness and an acknowledgement that we have to take the Islamic Republic for what it is, how it behaves, that transformation in the Islamic Republic isn't going to come from these international agreements. Um, but it has posed a dilemma, I think, for European policymakers, as well as for Iranian policymakers, because uh, the Islamic Republic remains under serious sanctions. And if it wants to address its uh, development conundrum, if it wants to address the lack of growth, uh, the high levels of inflation, the declining currency, all of its um, years of economic mismanagement, as well as corruption, it has to unlock its security dilemma um, with the West. So I think the thinking is by showing moderation um, in the region and trying to find some direct regional off ramps that perhaps over time, um, there could be new avenues for negotiations that could be developed. Um, towards uh, Iran. Um, and, and if not, and that's a, a clear option and a scenario that I think um, is under consideration, then Iran is also uh, looking for its own economic plan Bs. Um, it has managed to survive sanctions by um, building up what it calls its resistance economy, and it has embedded itself further in a predatory way in regional economies, um, using its, its um, willingness to export instability, but also using its network of influence around the region to extract economic gains. I think that, uh, you know, the plan B is to embed itself further in, in the region. And so this is an interesting consequence of maximum pressure, but also um, of the de-escalation trends that we're seeing in the region, that Iran, that has always seen itself as strategically isolated and lonely, um, is finding value in its regional relationships and regional neighborhood. So can it extract and can it develop uh, more productive economic relationships over a longer period of time? That remains to be seen, but that would be a positive uh, for the economic development of Iran. And I think perhaps, you know, it would be the first time that Iran uh, might align its economic and uh, regional foreign policy. The Islamic Republic is one of the unique um, states that doesn't align its foreign policy agenda with its economic agenda. And so should this be achieved, it would be um, a massive shift, but I'm not terribly optimistic, nor am I predicting that that's gonna be the outcome. And in fact, I think the challenge will be actually um, in uh, holding Iran accountable um, in this agreement. Um, and, you know, Yemen is going to be a very important test case uh, uh, to examine Iranian accountability um, and also um, to, uh, let's say, for example, there, you know, Iran does commit and, and is accountable in, um, in sort of halting the transfer of lethal aid to the Houthis. Um, that could be a positive, but if Iran cannot um, convince the Houthis to accept concessions or remain in agreements or, or you know, continue um, uh, to, to negotiate um, in, in the direction of peace, is Iran going to be held accountable for that? And so it, will, it actually will tell us a lot about the nature of Iran's relationships with its, um, with its networks around the region. There has always been an assumption that Iran has a, a command and control relationship around uh, the region, but it certainly does not have that relationship with the Houthis. And so um, this is going to be an area, I think, where we're all going to be looking at. Um, and ultimately, I personally think that Iran is, is never going to... Um, let's say, reduce its influence in Yemen, but it could transform the way it engages in Yemen because it has found through its relationship with the Houthis um, a longer term ability um, to check and, and um, to impose pressure on Saudi Arabia. So from a rational perspective, it, why would it leave um, and why would it abandon a relationship that provides it a strategic um, gain over a longer period of time?
So I think that the international community ultimately needs to create a process of accountability. Um, and that does require UN, US, uh, European presence and mediation. And I think that um, we also have to um, acknowledge that there are some strategic gains for Iran in its positioning around the region. It would be naive of us um, to assume that Iran is just suddenly going to withdraw um, or reduce its support. It might transform the way it engages um, in Yemen or in Iraq or in Syria. But strategically, it is irrational to think that Iran would leave areas that it has developed some form of leverage that has over time paid off for the Islamic Republic. Thank you, Dr. Sanam. So the the, uh, the situation seems uh, still uh, a bit uh, uh, cautionary and uh, it's not uh, still very complicated. Um, so um, now I want to move uh, to Dr. Chan Loeb uh, with another important question also when it comes to the agreement. Uh, it's about the uh, regional alignment. Now this agreement has been procured uh, by China uh, between Saudi Arabia and Iran, but previously, uh, the uh, during the uh, Trump administration, uh, the Abraham Accord was, uh, you know, um, brokered by the U.S. Uh, and it involves so far the UAE, Bahrain, uh, Morocco, and Sudan. So uh, it's a question about, uh, you know, the regional uh, realignment. Uh, I think my question is, uh, do you think that those two agreements go in line with one another or there's a divergence going to happen? Uh, thank you, Aisha. And, and I think it's a, it's, a, it's a major question and the answer would probably be different if we ask in Israel or in the Gulf. Uh, definitely in Israel, the, uh, the uh, agreement between Saudi Arabia and Iran uh, was welcomed as a setback because uh, the Netanyahu government and Netanyahu himself made very publicly uh, the goal of normalization uh, with Saudi Arabia. He made it a personal goal. Uh, and just one day before the Saudi-Iran uh, deal, there, was, uh, there were talks uh, of uh, Saudi Arabia uh, uh, discussing with the US administration its own conditions for normalization with Israel. Uh, without, but that being said, I don't think from the Gulf perspective, uh, this is a zero sum game. I don't think that uh, Saudi Arabia or even the UAE, which already engaged with Iran starting in 2019, uh, see this uh, rapprochement or this warming up of ties with Iran as um, uh, a movement uh, away from Israel. Uh, and I think this relates again to the idea of uh, the zero problem policy. I think at the moment, Gulf countries are in this uh, moment of cooperation uh, or re-engagement with all the different actors. Um, it remains to be seen if that can uh, last, uh, but I don't think uh, what we see right now with this uh, Saudi-Iran deal uh, means that uh, we won't see uh, anything else with uh, Israel. Now, having said that, I think the real problem uh, with uh, the normalization momentum between Israel and Gulf states has less to do with uh, the deal with Iran than with the current situation with the Netanyahu government and the situation in the West Bank. Uh, I mean, clearly, and this is more an issue for the UAE than for Saudi Arabia, obviously, but clearly at the moment, uh, this is more the uh, the factor uh, behind Gulf policy towards Israel rather than uh, relations uh, with Iran. But eventually, uh, the the question of uh, these two uh, two uh, movements, uh, relations with Israel or relations with Iran, uh, will be again put to the test when you have. Uh, a crisis like those that uh, were discussed earlier about the nuclear issue with Iran, which is not solved, or uh, the, uh, the situation in Yemen. And in the case of Israel, probably uh, uh, possibly uh, escalation in Lebanon with uh, Hezbollah, which is not completely uh, far-fetched at the moment. Okay, thank you very much. Um, 
Thank you very much to uh, all uh, the speakers uh, for those uh, uh, opening remarks. I think we covered a lot of, of ground and now I want to open the floor for questions. So anyone who have questions, please feel free to post them on the chat box. Uh, so far, I have uh, one question uh, for Dr. Sanam. Uh, it's from our colleague, uh, uh, Asif Shuja. He is asking, uh, how will the Iran-Saudi deal impact the hijab protest in Iran? And will Iran become less committed to the deal as soon as it gains complete control over these protests? Thank you for the question. Um, so I think it's, it's April 6th, and um, I think it's important to acknowledge that the protests more or less have come to an end. Um, it has, I think, regained control over the protests. There um, have been intermittent protests um, in connection to uh, this anniversary of individuals' deaths. We have seen intermittent protests also in, in uh, Sistan and Baluchistan, um, where the Baluchi community has um, continued to protest um, in a more determined way. But in most of the urban centers, the protests have come to an end. Um, and I think that it's quite clear also from the media coverage. Um, I have not seen a, a single story about the protests um, for quite some time now. Um, so I, as I sort of suggested in my in opening remarks for the Islamic Republic, um, it's important to show that it has um, in fact, uh, um, asserted control over the protesters. Um, there is also debate, I think, taking place inside Iran in, in how to manage the level of grievances and dissent that have emerged from across uh, Iranian society. These protests were um, definitely female-led, but the only grievances were not um, women, uh, female grievances. You saw economic grievances, political, deeply political oriented grievances as well. And so there's certainly um, certain um, levels of engagement across the political establishment underway. Um, and I think that this agreement with Saudi Arabia is about reducing um, external pressure on Iran, perhaps through um, the Saudi support for uh, diaspora based media, uh, perhaps for a support for um, uh, groups inside the country, um, you know, this showcases uh, a longer term objective that the Islamic Republic intends to continue to clamp down on protests and continues to um, be assertive in um, in uh, managing uh, its its domestic population and preventing, I think, uh, perhaps uh, another outbreak of this magnitude. Now, protests do take place in Iran more commonly, I would say, than um, in all other uh, states across the Middle East. We have seen serious political protests over the past two decades from 2009 with the Green Movement protests in 2017 and 2019, which were economically driven protests. Um, but these protests really uh, were, were quite different. Um, I think this was a sort of uh, the biggest wake up call that the political establishment has um, felt and seen um, it, since it has been in power. Uh, what it remains to be seen is if uh, the leadership in Iran is going to um, make shifts and make uh, concessions to the protesters um, in a formal way. There are perhaps some informal concessions being uh, made where there is, uh, maybe despite what is being reported, I hear quite anecdotally that um, women um, are already uh, flouting the veiling laws and there is no direct sort of police oversight in patrolling how women are currently dressing. Doesn't mean that the morality police is, is completely banned, or it doesn't mean that there is a legal change in how um, uh, women's rights and women's dress um, 
uh, is uh, acknowledged in the public domain, but there are some sort of de facto shifts uh, that have um, immediately been seen in Iran. We have to continue to watch and see if these shifts are going to be permanent um, or if this is a transition phase. Uh, and so, um, again, I think this is ultimately about reducing pressure um, for the establishment to think about how um, they can manage the multitude of threats uh, that they're facing. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Sanam. Uh, there is another question. Uh, I am going to pose it to all of you. It is from Ambassador Gorgi Bostin. He is asking, is the deal going to impact the return of Syria into the Arab fold? Dr. Mohammed, yeah. Yeah, well, I think uh, uh, this is to another uh, issue, but it's still a bit different from, uh, and it's not directly uh, connected to the Saudi-Iranian uh, agreement. Uh, there has been lots of activities in the region about uh, re-engaging the, the Syrian regime. And I think uh, with that step, maybe last year, we have seen many visits from Minister of Foreign Affairs and from Arab countries or officials to, to, uh, to Damascus. And also we know that the, some Arab Gulf states uh, reopened their diplomatic missions in Damascus, United Arab Emirates and Bahrain and others reopened their own uh, diplomatic missions. So also Saudi started uh, reopening their own uh, consulates and, and uh, our consul services in, in Damascus. Uh, that means uh, uh, they came to conclusion that Bashar, there is no, uh, any signs that Bashar al-Assad will go. So he will be there. And there are lots of, uh, Syrian refugees around the globe, actually, not only in the neighboring countries, including Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and uh, Jordan, Lebanon, and some European countries, but also everywhere. So we need to help the Syrians to have a better life, to go back home, and try to put some pressure on the uh, on the Syrian regime. And we are not talking about uh, total change, but at least a gradual change maybe in the behavior and the way at least some guarantees for the Syrians who are brought to go back, nobody will, uh, no security trace to those people or to be brought to jail. So uh, this is very important. Uh, and therefore I think uh, the, the Arab summit in Riyadh uh, next month, I think 19th of May uh, will uh, be, I think will be the turning point in terms of relation with, with Bashar al-Assad regime in Syria. So uh, is that part of the Saudi-Iranian agreement? Might be, but not reality. It's not directly connected, but my, because of the, the Iranian policy in the region, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and, and Yemen. So people will see it that way. But in reality, I think it's an Arab initiative and effort from some Arab countries, especially Egypt and other countries, to re uh, to convince Arab country to engage, re-engage with Bashar al-Assad. Thank you very much, uh, John. Lou, did you want to comment? Uh, very quickly, maybe uh, the and as Mohammed just said, I think the uh, the uh, normalization of Assad uh, started uh, before the uh, Saudi Iran uh, deal. Uh, and uh, seen from Damascus, I'm sure that the Assad regime sees the deal as uh, another, an additional element that can ease the pressure on it and uh, possibly uh, allows it uh, to uh, restore its diplomatic relations uh, with all the, the actors in the region. But having said that, the, I think actually Syria will be an interesting test uh, because this normalization uh, between Gulf states and Assad was also initially started with the assumption that um, getting closer to Assad would be a way to put Assad uh, at the distance from Iran and to decrease Iranian influence inside Iran, in, inside Syria. Uh, because I don't see honestly, objectively, uh, common objectives uh, for Saudi Arabia, uh, and Iran inside Syria. Uh, the Iranian military presence is quite strong right, right now in Syria. Uh, if we discuss in details the Syrian uh, question, we get into the issue of Lebanon, which is also a very 
a delicate issue uh, for both Saudi Arabia and Iran. So at the end of the day, I think uh, that on the very short term, people may assume that uh, this will enable greater or ease the relations with the Assad regime, but it will also uh, put the, the two countries, Saudi Arabia and, and Iran, uh, in front of uh, major contradiction or major disagreements on what they want in Syria. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Sanam. Can I just say one more, one thing here on the Iranian perspective of this? I think um, oftentimes there is an assumption that um, Iran um, uh, might be unhappy by the uh, Arab uh, sort of reconciliation towards Assad. But um, the view in Iran is actually uh, one that is quite supportive of uh, reconciliation. Um, from Tehran's perspective, this vindicates um, Iran's defense of the Assad regime. And um, it, uh, it invites um, other countries to um, engage, particularly economically, in Syria that reduces the pressure for Tehran. And so I think it's important um, to, to think about what that means. Iran is confident enough in the relationship and is adapted enough in managing its, its network of relationships around the region that we shouldn't see these relationships in zero-sum terminology. Um, it, and when Iran has less economic pressure coming from this network um, that it has developed through the years, that poses um, opportunities also for Iran. Um, ultimately, what Iran seeks in with the groups that it has supported over a four-decade period is um, the interdependence, um, but also independence of those groups. Um, these are actors that Iran uh, can sometimes extract concessions from, sometimes will not be able to call upon to, to um, represent or support Iran's objectives, political, economic, or, or regional. Um, but for these actors to become legitimate political players is a long time goal of the Islamic Republic. Hezbollah's role in the Lebanese government is one example of that, seeing proxy groups in Iraq also um, step into the political domain um, is an important um, opportunity for um, Iran and, and that network, but also in the case of the Houthis, the same concept applies here. Iran would like to see these um, groups as legitimate political actors in these countries. Um, so uh, the idea that um, that the Gulf states could peel off these relationships really has to be looked at through a generational kind of decade, if not two decade kind of investment, um, because these are the kind of investments and the relationships that Iran has built with these actors over the course of multiple decades. And I would also add one more caveat. The Islamic Republic um, and Assad relationship is really historical. It's, you know, dates back to Assad senior. Um, and I think that that's important to understand because Iran plays on these sort of historical ties, again, not always to get what it wants, but to show um, the durability um, through the ups and downs, through the good years and the bad years. Um, and, and that it is, is a reliable actor. Um, and that is an, a model um, that has proved to be helpful for Iran um, in, in the region. Thank okay, you. Thank you very much, uh, Sanam. And uh, to all of you, uh, I think the, uh, the, it sounds like there is a, a lot of, uh, you know, test for the agreement uh, to uh, become successful. Uh, there is the issue in Yemen, in Syria, and also in Lebanon. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have much of time. Uh, uh, so... I am going to conclude with one final question and I'm gonna pose it to all of you. Uh, it's actually uh, perhaps, uh, it is the way forward for the agreement. How do you think that this agreement can be a success this time moving forward? And uh, can I start with Dr. Mohammed maybe? And you have two minutes, please. Thank you very much. Uh, well, uh, it is, uh, uh, very important uh, agreement, but it, uh, we, we should be optimistic, but we have to be very careful in our optimism. This is one thing. Uh, second, uh, there are working groups from both Saudi and Iranian sides. They will have to uh, put all the things on the, paper, on the table and they have to deal with every single issue between the two countries. So 
then uh, uh, we uh, agree on everything. Should we reach an agreement or should we postpone some of the issues to in order to solve others? So this is uh, very important and will unfold uh, during the, few, uh, the coming, I think, months, not weeks, but months. Third, uh, uh, this agreements, agreement doesn't resolve all issues between the two sides. We have to acknowledge that. Third, uh, uh, there are lots of difficulties in implementing this agreement on the ground to see the result, the positive result, the normal relation between the two sides. Uh, to have a full uh, diplomatic, uh, not only diplomatic, but normal relations, uh, that is, because even before 2016, we had lots of difficulties with Iran, but we had diplomatic ties with Iran at that time. So uh, that doesn't mean much. So we have better, we have diplomatic relations, but doesn't mean that we have no problems. We will continue to have uh, several, I think, problems between the two sides because the neutrality, nationality, uh, uh, you know, the nationality of the, the two sides, the political sides, uh, the, the models of the governance of two sides. But if we, there is a will from both sides, uh, we will uh, work maybe slowly to resolve most of the problems. Uh, and of course, if there is no huge changes in the region, if there is no wars, if there is no uh, those players who want to bring, bring an end early into this agreement to to see the differences, because they want to see differences on problems between Saudi Arabia and Iran, because it is an investment for them. So I think uh, uh, with the time, uh, we will uh, be more sure if this uh, continuous and, and uh, sustainable agreement or not. Thank you very much, Dr. Mohammed. Uh, uh, Dr. Sanam, you want to come in? Sure, thank you. Um, I mean, I think this agreement is a real reflection of changing dynamics in the Middle East. Uh, um, I think that Middle Eastern states, um, far beyond just Saudi Arabia and Iran, although this is a really consequential sh consequence consequential shift, excuse me, um, have been um, moving towards this pattern of de-escalation now uh, for a few years. Um, and, and so this is a positive shift, uh, but we shouldn't see, um, I think we should be careful um, and not see all of this de-escalation de in zero-sum terms, as Jean-Lou and, and Dr. Mohammed have also said. Um, you know, this is a time of regional promiscuity. Um, everyone is normalizing. Uh, there is a lot of opportunity out here. Just because um, Saudi Arabia and Iran are reconciling doesn't mean Saudi Arabia and Israel won't reconcile. Um, there's plenty of opportunity um, to build on this momentum of de-escalation and build towards integration. But I think what's missing here is actually a more uh, multilateral um, support from the international community. Uh, these are nascent shifts, nascent shifts that require a huge amount of um, diplomatic investment to, to build trust that has been frayed on all sides of the region within the Gulf that is taking place since Al-Ula. Um, but, you know, we're still not there and it's going to take a long time to really real build back trust in that, those dynamics. Israel and the UAE, Israel and Bahrain, these normalizations are fully underway and in full swing, but again, there is much people-to-people -people work that needs to be done in order for societies to truly understand and make progress. There needs to be an investment in conflict management, addressing uh, the ongoing crisis in Palestine. Uh, so there's a, a lot of work here, and so we should be watching and be supportive, but the international community, I think, needs to step in and scaffold and support some of these arrangements uh, so that um, processes and um, can be built, greater interaction uh, can lead to uh, maybe more institutionalization of regional security, um, ultimately in the Middle East. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Sam. Uh, Dr. Sanlu, please. <laughs> Yes, uh, well, I, I mean, I fully agree with uh, Sanam and uh, Mohammed uh, in the sense that uh, we should start by saying that success, uh, the success of this uh, deal uh, will be defined by our expectations and the expectations should be realistic. I think that's the lesson uh, of the discussion so far. Uh, at the end of the day, the, the big 
concrete achievement is that we are back to 2016 when uh, Saudi Arabia and UAE, uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran had, uh, let's say, normal diplomatic relations. Uh, that's the, the first concrete achievement of the deal. Uh, and I think it's uh, it's something that uh, shouldn't be dismissed, uh, shouldn't be um, uh, underestimated to have diplomatic uh, relations, open diplomatic relations between the two countries. Uh, having said that, the the, the major uh, major objective, I, I think the, the, the very concrete objective should be uh, to uh, remove Iran from the equation in Yemen, uh, meaning that uh, I think it's possible uh, to see uh, decreasing uh, the role of Iran in supporting the policies, but I don't think this will solve the war in Yemen. I don't think, and I think this was uh, said before, that uh, the war in Yemen started before Iran increased its support to the Houthis. So I don't think uh, a Saudi-Iran uh, discussion on Yemen will suddenly solve all the issues uh, in Yemen. Uh, beyond that, uh, let's say that this deal should be seen uh, again as a stepping stone or a part of a regional momentum where all the different uh, players, Gulf states, Turkey, Israel, Iran, are in one way or another uh, more open to cooperation, which is quite uh, unprecedented in a sense uh, in the region. It's not uh, all the time that you see uh, uh, discussions about uh, deals uh, in the Middle East. So we should praise that. But beyond that, I don't think this is the deal that would solve, obviously, all the issues uh, between the two countries and more broadly, uh, the, the, the regional competition between uh, Iran uh, and Gulf states. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it is uh, one past six uh, already. Uh, so thank you very much for the speakers for enlightening us about this, uh, the implications of the deal uh, in the region, as well as the involvement of the great powers uh, in the region. And it sounds that the, the deal is both promising, but also the challenges remains ahead to see if the deal is going to live to its promise. Uh, with that, I would like to thank everyone uh, and special thanks again to the speakers for your time uh, and for uh, the, the insights. And I also would like uh, to thank the event organizer, uh, Sharon, uh, for putting this event together. Uh, with that, uh, I'll leave you and have a nice evening, morning or afternoon. Goodbye. <laughs>